This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Rico Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. And in a minute here, it's going to be Vox Conversations with my colleague Sean Illing and his guest, Joe Bernstein of BuzzFeed. They recently had a somewhat daunting talk about misinformation online, how tech giants play a role in spreading it, why researchers are having such a hard time agreeing what it even is, and why, unfortunately, misinformation is here to stay. But also what we need to do to make living with it a little less shitty. All of this and more is coming up on Vox Conversations. Oh, and one more thing. If you haven't subscribed to the show, maybe you'll reconsider after listening. Hope so. Okay, here's Sean. Is the disinformation panic overblown? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Should we be panicking over disinformation? Over the last four or five years, we've been sold a pretty consistent story. The short version is something like this. We're living in a golden age of conspiracy theories, thanks to the internet and the tsunami of fake news and disinformation it's unleashed. Another fight is shaping up over how big of a role conspiracy theories are gonna have in the Republican Party. QAnon picking up some new momentum. Its followers are running for school boards and local offices. And all this chaos has completely deranged our society. I believe some of the theories could be true. I believe some of them are great fairy tales. Whether it's QAnon, Facebook decided to take down conspiracy theories pushed by the online movement known as QAnon. Or the insurrection on January 6th. Another post stating, the next time I see fireworks go off in D.C., I want them attached to traitor politicians. The doors were open. Capitol Police were standing right there letting people in. Or the anti-vaccine hysteria. Some groups on Facebook and Instagram are using code words to avoid being detected. There is no evidence that I can see that a pandemic exists. The culprit, more often than not, is bad information breaking people's brains. It all ties together. Maybe the narrative isn't quite that simple, but it's damn close. And to be totally transparent, I've done more than my fair share to reinforce this story. I've covered the misinformation crisis as much as I've covered anything. And I have argued that it's at the center of our societal dysfunction. And if I were to say to you that, that everyone around them says these are rumors, these are conspiracy theories that are completely unfounded. And, and that is a lie because Hillary Clinton is on video. There is raw footage of her out there torturing a little girl. But I read an essay recently in Harper's Magazine that gave me real pause. I can't say that it changed my mind in any profound way, but it did make me question some of my deepest assumptions about the information ecosystem online. The essay was called Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. And the author is Joseph Bernstein, a senior tech reporter for BuzzFeed News. Bernstein thinks our conversation about disinfo is blinkered by lots of errors and blind spots. It's not that he questions whether disinformation is a thing. The problem for him is that we don't have a consistent definition of the term. Even the people researching it can't agree on what they're talking about. But the bigger and much less understood issue is that certain interests are invested in overhyping disinfo because it's good for business and because it's a way of denying the real roots of our problems. So I reached out to Bernstein to talk about where he thinks the conversation went wrong and why it's not all that clear whether the internet broke America or just unmasked it. Joseph Bernstein, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Joe, I have spent a lot of time 
over the last three, four, five years making noises about disinformation and misinformation and what a great grand problem it is. And I have to say, you really made me think hard about how easily I might have bought into some of the conventional wisdom on this stuff. And maybe that's just a good place to start. Why do you think people like me and other pundits and writers have bought into this panic? I think the idea of bad information on the internet is a poorly understood and, and at times poorly discussed topic. That is a huge topic. That is a new topic. That is a very important topic, but that like many problems, it helps to define them. And if you have trouble defining them, it helps to think about why. And when you start thinking about why, it helps to think about who is trying to define the problem and why. And so especially as we've seen, you know, with this series of revelations in the Wall Street Journal over the past couple of weeks, and then the testimony of the Facebook whistleblower, these are real problems. It's just not clear to me that we understand completely what's at stake or that we understand completely how these categories that are being kind of tossed around, and I've at times tossed them around too, mis and disinformation, how they're being used. And when I wrote this piece that we're going to talk about, that's really what I wanted to do is not to say that with several private companies having basically monopoly power over the flow of information, that that's like a thing we should just be happy with and live with, but that when we talk about the problem, we should understand who wants to address it and why. And so I do think there are people who have a vested or even an unconscious interest in making people as alarmed as possible about like unchecked information writ large. Yeah, well, you definitely wanted to inject a little bit of doubt into our conversation about disinformation and misinformation. I mean, what were you seeing? What did you see in the discourse that made you just want to step back and go, hold on, I need to push the pause button here, or at least, you know, throw a wrench into the conversation? Sure. Well, the first thing that I had the luxury of was time. I did a fellowship, an academic fellowship last year, which gave me a lot of time to kind of sit and think about some problems that had nagged me but that like, you know, you, like anyone in media who's on deadline, who is on the news cycle, maybe doesn't have the luxury to really sit and think about. And, you know, buzzwords, I think, are always a good place to start because I think they do sort of at times unlock hidden meanings or things that we feel very strongly about that we don't necessarily understand. And I, for some time, have seen mis- and disinformation as essentially buzzwords. They are scientific sounding words, key descriptor sounding, that do not have common meanings to the people who use them. So you have a group of people who use these terms, but within that group, there's a lot of subgroups. So there's academics, there's journalists, there's kind of civil society groups, think tanks, there's the public at large who use mis- and disinformation because they've heard these words a lot. And I don't have a sense... And particularly when I started writing this, I didn't have a sense that when people used these words, they meant much more than information I don't like or that I disagree with or that I don't think is true. And I was worried that in the same way that fake news was originally a term used by sort of right thinking, I don't mean on the political right, but like well-intentioned people in the media, and then was seized by President Trump to, in fact, attack the media, mis- and disinformation were well-intentioned, but ultimately somewhat hollow designations. I mean, one of the things you point out pretty early in your, your article, and I think it will surprise people, is that even to hell with just pundits and just you know, regular people, disinformation scholars can't even define disinformation. I mean, how is that possible? How do we not have a coherent, consistent definition of the term? What scholars would say is that they have a lexical problem, which is that there's an issue, everyone knows there's an issue, but everyone is attacking this issue using the same word, but with a different idea in their head. Yeah. So the most comprehensive survey of the scholarly field is from 2018. Uh, it's a scientific literature review called Social Media Political Polarization and Political Disinformation. And the definition they give of disinformation, and this is a good kind of broad survey of the field, this is the definition they give. Disinformation is intended to be a broad category describing the types of information that one could encounter online 
that could possibly lead to misperceptions about the actual state of the world. Unreal. Now, as far as I can tell, that definition basically applies to anything you could come in contact with online. And Sean, I should make the point, this trickles down to the definitions that tech companies use when they define mis- and disinformation. So like, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but TikTok's definition of misinformation is something like information that is not true or information that could mislead or is not true. There's just not a lot of there there. There's a lot of good research, but for something that aspires to be kind of an objective science, there's not a good objective foundation. Well, one of the problems here, and you do nod to this in your article, that we are desperate for a neutral dispassionate definition of disinformation so that it's possible to call something disinformation without it appearing political. But that doesn't really seem possible. And it's still just not clear where the line is between disinformation and partisan news we don't like. It's just not clear. Yeah. And then like one of the interesting things to me was when I looked up the etymology of the term, it's actually a borrowing from a a Russian word that was popularized in the kind of early years of the Cold War, uh, desinformatia. It was initially defined in the 1952 Great Soviet Encyclopedia, which was kind of a propaganda encyclopedia meant for English consumption. Its definition was as follows. Dissemination in the press or on the radio of false reports intended to mislead public opinion. The capitalist press and radio make wide use of desinformatia. So I don't mean to be a complete relativist and say there aren't things that are true or false. Of course there are. But, you know, on the Internet especially, context is very, very important. And it's very hard to isolate particular, like, nuggets of information as good or bad information. Do you have a better definition of disinformation? Or, <laughs> or Okay, maybe that's asking a little too much since, you know, the entire body of experts don't even have one. Maybe a, a better way to get at it is to ask you, Is there a simple way to distinguish it from misinformation or even propaganda? Because as you said, these things get used interchangeably all the time. And most people using them can't tell you the difference. I like the word propaganda better than I like the word mis- and disinformation because I think it has a stronger political connotation. I think there is a broad understanding among the people who study and the people who talk about mis- and disinformation in the media that disinformation is more intentional than misinformation. And misinformation tends to be poorly contextualized, but nevertheless, true or truthy information. Uh, You know, what I wanted to do with this piece is make it clear that these definitions have politics behind them and the way people use them have politics behind them. And so I don't even think there's necessarily anything wrong with using these terms as long as it's clear that there are interests. And I'm not implying some kind of like broad conspiracy. I think you know, as I've, I'm really at pains to say, maybe I didn't say it enough in the piece, there are people who are operating in utter good faith, who care deeply about public discourse, who are studying this problem. I just want some recognition that the use of these terms has a politics behind it, even if that's a centrist or a kind of a conventional liberal politics. You know, I would like that to be a feature of the discussion. And just so it's clear, when you mean it has a politics behind it, you just mean they're being used by people in service of a agenda, but people don't want to disclose that agenda. So they just kind of cloak it under the guise of, you know, disinfo or misinfo or whatever. I think agenda, <laughs> that depends on what the meaning of is, is. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, agenda has such an intense connotation. Yeah. There is an argument that's been made, particularly by a media scholar at Rutgers named Jack Bradich, that the sort of contemporary formation of people who study disinformation He calls them part of a war of restoration uh, and that they're essentially like the shock troops of the American political center who are trying to like reestablish the boundaries of acceptable, you know, thought and speech. It comes pretty close to like the Glenn Greenwald territory. I don't really want to go there, but I do want to say when you start talking about good and bad information, you're giving yourself a fair amount of power over what is allowed into the public discourse. And of course, This was a big topic of conversation, especially early in the Trump years, the so-called Overton window, the topics that are up for discussion, that are up for contestation in the public arena. And, you know, one of the things that, to go back to your first question that got me thinking about this is there were two simultaneous discussions that seemed intimately related to me that were not talking to each other. The first is this discussion about bad information in public or the loss of control over information in public. And the other discussion is, well, there are more voices at the table than there ever have been before 
that's both a good and a bad thing. And when you start saying, okay, we're going to retrench, we're going to rebuild some kind of control, I think that conversation has to speak to the progress, frankly, that's been enabled by sort of the loss of power of the gatekeepers. Oh, I definitely want to come back to the gatekeeping point, because that's something I think maybe most about, and I just find it endlessly important and interesting. But before we get there, I do want to ask, because a very big claim in your piece is that the disinformation craze has become a vehicle for propping up the online ad economy. And I think it might sound counterintuitive to some people to say that you know a big tech company like Facebook would readily embrace the idea that disinfo is a major problem. You know, what does a company like Facebook stand to gain here? Why are they selling this so hard? Because it seems like this panic around disinfo has put a lot of pressure on them and drawn a lot of attention to their role in you know, breaking our democracy or whatever. So why would they be invested in pushing and selling this idea that disinformation is real and a major catastrophic emergency? Well, one of the things that got me thinking about this was, again, I started with kind of a buzzword that I have used, the information ecosystem. It just kind of makes intuitive sense. We have a world, a natural world of information, and then some things pollute it. And so then I started thinking about other industries that pollute and that have gotten in trouble for polluting. So like the tobacco industry, which has been a major point of comparison to big tech recently, well, cigarettes give people cancer. Or, you know, the fossil fuel industry, it pollutes and it's contributing to climate change. And there's science, good science behind that. And yet these industries have spent years fighting the science, trying to undermine the science. And I was very surprised when I thought about the timeline of how long it took Facebook essentially to be blamed for throwing the 2016 election in Trump's favor and for Brexit to when Mark Zuckerberg essentially publicly admitted misinformation was a problem. And like, we intuit that that's true, but I don't think, you know, the science is necessarily there. I don't think the study of media effects on politics is necessarily there yet. I mean, we're still getting the political science on the effect of Father Coughlin on, I believe, the 1936 election. I mean, like, these are questions that are going to be resolved over time. But you had Mark Zuckerberg out there in public basically saying, like, we're going to fight misinformation. I mean, partially that's because I think Facebook has never had a particularly coherent, like, press strategy. But part of it, I think, is that Facebook realized very quickly, as did the other big tech companies, that rather than in a kind of blanket way say, this isn't true, these claims, there's no empirical basis behind them. I think they realized that co-opting or at least putting their arm around the people who are doing this research was a better strategy. And I started to wonder why, you know, from a public relations perspective, it, it makes good sense. But also, I started to think about the nature of the claim itself that people being exposed to bad information are like necessarily convinced by that information. And then that's when I kind of had a eureka moment, which was that that's the way that Facebook makes money. What Hannah Arendt calls the psychological premise of human manipulability, which is kind of a mouthful, but I say it in the piece, is a product itself. And so if we accept that people are endlessly convincible by whatever bullshit they see on Facebook on the internet, in some ways, we're contributing to the idea that the ad duopoly, Facebook and Google, and just online ads in general work. And I'm kind of going on, but there's a terrific book that I read around that time by a guy who's now the general counsel of Substack. He's a guy named Tim Wong, who worked at Google for a long time. Substack, which makes money through subscriptions and not through ads, importantly here. And the book is called Subprime Attention Crisis. And it's basically about how much of the online ad industry is a house of cards. One very interesting fact about the Facebook whistleblower disclosures to the SEC, and one that got almost no press attention, is that she claims, based on internal Facebook research, that they were badly misleading investors in the reach and efficacy of their ads. And to me, the most damaging thing you could say about Facebook is that this kind of industrial information machine doesn't actually work. And so that kind of flipped everything I thought about this on its head. And that's sort of when I started to write, write the piece. Yeah, I think if there's a point of tension between us, it, it may be on this question of whether or not it works. I don't know how much it works, but I'm pretty sure it works to some mm -hmm. degree. You write in the piece, and I'll just quote you here, that 
the digital advertising industry relies on our perception of its ability to persuade as much as on any measurement of its ability to actually do so. This is a matter of public relations, of storytelling. And here, the disinformation frame has been a great asset, end quote. Do you doubt that these platforms and the content they're feeding people is driving behavior? Do you think we're just wrong about that or, or mistaken in some fundamental way? I don't think it's a binary, although I can see why you would think that based on reading the piece. The piece is provocative. I, like, I understand that. There's kind of two models for thinking about the way the internet models human behavior. One is, is that it's a mirror, uh, essentially that it holds up a mirror, a big mirror to society, and our behavior is reflected. And we see things we don't like that we didn't see before uh, because everyone has this publishing ability now, this ability to make themselves known. The other poll is that information on the internet is actually shaping behavior and people are acting in certain ways because of the things, the media they're exposed to online. I think the truth is it's somewhere in between uh, and that those two, the way we are and the things we see interact. I think that interaction is pretty complicated. There was a really good response to this piece it may have even just been a tweet by a, a media scholar who basically said, when we think about what he called media epistemology, basically, you know, how we know what we know from the media, it's best to think small because Facebook has all this data on us and it's this big, like, panoptic thing. It encourages us to think in this big top-down way. I've always been more comfortable as a reporter, even though this piece does make some top-down claims, starting with the building blocks and thinking inductively and then using that to generalize. And we're just so early. And if you want to make the case that Facebook is so powerful and these companies are so powerful and we need to regulate them, we need to regulate now and kind of think later. That's okay. I'm just not that confident. So like whether or not Facebook is actually shaping behavior, I think that's still an open question in the social science. Of course, one of the claims in the Facebook whistleblowers disclosures is that Instagram is leading teen girls to have bad body image. I mean, first of all, as many people, feminist scholars, lots of people pointed out, this has been an issue in, in Western culture for a long time. It's intimately related to the way that teenagers are sold products. But then there's a very interesting op-ed in the Times by the leading scholar of teenage psychology, which basically said this research is a starting point, but there's all kinds of hypotheses you could make about the effect of Instagram on teens. One is that teens are exposed to more kinds of body types because it's a bigger platform than just kind of the top-down control that we had with television and print magazines. Social media and Instagram specifically may be helping teens connect at a time when they're sort of artificially being held apart because of COVID restrictions. So this kind of perspective that I'm bringing will be attacked as, you know, dithering or endlessly going back and forth on an intellectual basis rather than addressing a real problem. I just want us to define what the problem is before we start making these kind of broad claims about how to fix it. And there are a couple of threads here that maybe get tangled up in these conversations. There's the digital advertising part of it, you know, the Amazon ads popping up on our Facebook feeds. And I have no idea how effective those are. I'm pretty skeptical too. And then mm -hmm. there's what I think most people are talking about when they talk about disinformation, which is the fire hose of falsehoods being blasted into people's brains online mm -hmm. every day. And I think what you're saying, just so that it's clear, is that a lot of people are invested in peddling the story about disinformation because it's good for the advertising business, because it speaks to the power, the persuasive power of these platforms. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things I talk about in the piece is how the advertising industry you know, has its own history. And as long as it's sort of been a kind of mass sort of consolidated field, it has attempted to co-opt or bring on board the behavioral sciences as a way of making its persuasive power quantifiable or appear to be quantifiable. And so the story that Tim Wong is trying to tell in his book is essentially that Facebook is sort of the endpoint in that narrative of ads as a quantifiable thing. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. I wanted to inject some skepticism into that sort of narrative. I'm certainly not expert on digital ads. And I think, again, as with this sort of disinformation question more broadly, it is hard to disentangle correlation from causation. That's not something that I came up with. I mean, economists think about this all the time, how companies' money is best spent on various kinds of marketing. 
advertising is only one kind of marketing. Companies spend a lot of money on like where their products will be placed on the shelf. The question of whether you bought a Toyota because you saw an ad for a Toyota or because your friend has a Toyota or because you have some positive brand association with Toyota because your parents drove it when you're, you know, these things are, are difficult to untangle. But I think it's important to remember the concepts of disinformation really came into the popular lexicon around the time of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And Cambridge Analytica was selling hard the idea that they could swing elections through these psychographic profiles through political ads. And so I think it is important that it comes into the popular conversation in an advertising context. That's certainly the context in which Brad Parscale, the Trump digital director who became his campaign manager briefly in the 2020 campaign, you know, that's what he was talking about, that Trump has this ability to like micro-target ads in such a way that makes him, you know, this unique candidate. You know, I personally think Trump is a formidable candidate because he appeals to these kind of long sub rosa, but, you know, fully existing strains of cultural resentment, racism in, in America. I think that's a much more powerful factor than like Brad Parscale tinkering with Facebook ads. Um, and there's some decent political science behind this. One of the studies I talk about in the piece, this is a 2017 Stanford NYU study, concluded that if one fake news article were about as persuasive as one TV campaign ad, the fake news in our database would have changed vote shares by an amount on the order of hundreds of a percentage point. This is much smaller than Trump's margin of victory in the pivotal states on which the outcome, this is the 2016 election, depended. So, uh, you know, I'm just skeptical. At the same time, that fire hose you're talking about, and if there's a criticism in my piece that I take to heart, it's that I didn't talk about amplification very much. And amplification is sort of one of the keywords that comes out of the Facebook whistleblower testimony. Um, the idea that certain content is like artificially, you know, amplified or shown to more people than it would be naturally. Although again, talking about a natural state, I think these decisions are always going to have some political ramifications. But I think that's a fair point when you talk about just like this relentless barrage of bad information. Yeah, a lot of this comes down to how you feel about the links between ideas and action or beliefs and behavior. There has to be some kind of line from information to belief to action in the world. It's obviously mm -hmm. you know, anecdotal. I, I, I've seen and I know several people in my own life who I've watched get sucked into these rabbit holes. And I know mm -hmm. rabbit hole is a kind of lazy, cliched term that you, you mock in the piece rightfully, but there it is. But I feel like I've watched this kind of radicalization process unfold in real time. And it's because of this bombardment of, of content. You know, I mean, there's, there's something there. It's not nothing. So one of the reasons I started thinking about this is I've written about this kind of like online radicalization. I, I was writing about that a lot in like 2016, 2017. And talking to radicalization researchers, the really honest ones will tell you they don't know what causes it. There are things that correlate to it. It's not necessarily media exposure. And to me, that cultural accretion is more important than the overlay of information. To me. And these things interact. I think that's a completely fair argument. But as you say, I think, Sean, I could probably show you horrible lies about the 2020 election for a week, nothing but that. And you probably wouldn't believe it, you know, unless there was like good, solid reporting on it. And like, I'm not trying to butter you up. I'm just saying we all bring our own yeah. crap to bear on the media we consume. And I felt at times that the discussion was ignoring that. No question. And look, you write in a piece, and again, I'll, I'll quote you, that it's really important to take the whole environment into view, or as much of it as we can, or to do that is to see how preposterously insufficient it is to blame these platforms for the sad extremities of our national life, up to and including the riot on January 6th. And there is a huge point here that you're making about blaming all of our national pathologies on disinformation. And we'll come back to that. And I think you're right that disinfo has become a boogeyman. But I still personally don't think January 6th was possible without disinformation and a wildly asymmetric media environment. Hell, at one time, and I know you know this, 70% of Republicans did not believe the 2020 election was free and fair. And the people who stormed the Capitol that day were utterly convinced of this. And that's a case where I feel like we can draw a pretty straight line 
from disinformation to real world action. I want to say two things to that point, which is a very difficult conversation. It's just a hard conversation. No doubt. Two things. The first is, yeah, the right-wing media was telling them that. Who was telling the right-wing media that? The president of the United States. Yeah. I think we just still don't appreciate how extraordinary that is. The guy, the most powerful person in the world who has had since, you know, <laughs> ancient history, 2015, has had this rabid right-wing fan base and he's been telling them these lies for that period of time or longer. I mean, if you go back to the Obama birth certificate stuff, these are hard questions that even the mainstream media was is still figuring out how to deal with, how to cover the crazy shit that Trump says. So I want to bracket that a little bit. The other point that I want to make is I do think networks like Facebook enable people to find each other. Those network effects are possible because everyone is on Facebook. If you want to say Facebook is too big, I agree with that. I think people being connected in that way is maybe simply a fact that we're going to have to learn to deal with because of the nature of digital communication, which is not to let Facebook off the hook. They're a private company. They're trying to make as much money as possible. We should have no illusions about that. But like... Digital technology enables communication at scale in a way that was never possible in the past. That's simply a fact. And I think some of the discussion about January 6th that talks about the role of Facebook simply won't reckon with that. That Facebook allows and that digital communication allows what are essentially free radicals to find each other. And to occupy a much bigger place in the national life than maybe their numbers would merit. No question. You know, and even something like QAnon, which is obviously bound up with January 6th, it is hard, uh, impossible even, to imagine so many people being so thoroughly and so uniformly deluded about the world without the internet and without a very insular right-wing media ecosystem. I mean, is this a golden age of conspiracy theories? I don't know, maybe. I just know it's never been easier to propagate lies. And I guess the other thing I would say is if you survey the history of, of mass media technologies going back to radio and TV, mm -hmm. you always see an explosion in propaganda. This is true in Europe, it's true here, mm -hmm. of propaganda, often ultra right-wing propaganda. And while those sorts of attitudes, as you point out, always existed, in the population. There is just no doubt in my mind, at least, that these technologies don't merely reflect what was already there. They amplify it and thereby make it more mainstream. And I don't know where to draw the, the causal line there. It's a chicken or egg thing, maybe. But I do yeah. think these technologies, are, they definitely change us on, on some level. Yeah, I think chicken and the egg is like an unsatisfying, but probably good way to think about it. I also think <laughs> if, I, if this essay did anything it made it not just a chicken discussion. <laughs> yes. Like, so one thing I will say though, is like, and you know, you alluded to this. There's a great book that I read while I was writing this by the libertarian historian named Paul Matsko. Oh, um, yeah, great. Yeah. Called the uh, radio, right. Um, which is about a network of deeply, deeply conservative, basically frothing at the mouth, like pre Goldwater Republicans. There were these sort of evangelical radio preachers. They had an audience of millions and the kind of mass media was basically unaware of them. The Kennedy administration was extremely aware of them because they were worried that they were going to lose him an election. Yeah. And he used the FCC to basically crush them. Again, these are politics. Like, they were telling a lot of lies, but also Kennedy used the tools of power to destroy them, you know, under the name of good information, whatever you want to call it. So again, I want people to keep politics in mind when they have these discussions. Yeah, you know, I guess I'd also say, and this is not a counterpoint to anything you wrote or said, I just, yeah, it's worth stating in a, a conversation like this. You can look at, you know, beyond the US at a place like the Philippines or India or Brazil today. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that disinformation is getting people killed, where you have this inflammatory propaganda that's being spread via you know, Facebook and platforms like WhatsApp that is absolutely responsible for justifying and fueling 
real world political violence. And that is a real problem. Yeah. You know, I didn't talk about other countries in this piece because I didn't want to generalize yeah, in that way. I think, sure. you know, if, if there's one thing, uh, you know, I also wanted to do in this piece, it's basically say these things act differently in different contexts. My former colleague, Davy Alba, did a wonderful story about the effect of Facebook as used by the Duterte regime. Of course, a lot has been written about the way Modi uses Facebook and WhatsApp in India. I think those are completely fair points. But again, I think that if you talk about WhatsApp, you're talking about a hazard of mass communication and mass connection. Yep. Certainly the prejudices that are being exploited in those countries are very, very old, or at least existed damagingly long before the introduction of cell phones. Yep. You know, there is another dimension of this story that you alluded to a minute ago, and I want to make sure we don't gloss over it because it's kind of a pet fascination of mine. And that is the collapse of the old pre-digital gatekeeping media system and the consequences of that collapse. And you write in the piece, and I'll just quote you again, that the most prestigious liberal institutions of the pre-digital age are the most invested in fighting disinformation. And that reveals a lot about what they stand to lose or hope to regain. What are you getting at there? <laughs> so if you look at who is doing the most work in these areas or has over the past couple of years, you know, you're talking about the New York Times, Harvard, which is where I did my fellowship and God bless them for not, uh, <laughs> you know, revoking it when I published it. Oh, I guess I was already done with the fellowship. You know, the Brookings Institution, the Aspen Institute. Right. These places are full of really smart people who are like, again, as I said, engaging in good faith. But when we take a step back and think structurally about the role they've historically played, they are like the most important knowledge-making institutions in our world. And so when they say there's an information problem and we're going to be the people to solve it, that means something, particularly at a time when digital publication has weakened their position vis-a-vis -vis being authorities on what we know. Yeah. And so even in the case that every single person in every one of these institutions is acting in abiding good faith, from a pure optics perspective, it looks a little funny. And like, there should be some acknowledgement of that. Then you get into much more difficult questions about how these institutions should regard, you know, like the democratic election of Donald Trump. That's a hard thing to say even now, but it happened. And I think I already said this, but it puts them in a conservative position. It puts them in the position of saying, slow down, this change is bad. Yeah. And I don't think that's a position that these institutions, while being institutions, are necessarily most comfortable in occupying. That is a good way to put it. And one definitely gets the sense that the political class, the sorts of people and institutions that took for granted their elevated role in the discourse are panicking over their now almost comical inability to impose borders on the public discourse. And, you know, look, traditional media and elite institutions of the sort you just mentioned, you know, like universities or think tanks or foundations or whatever, have always fancied themselves as the gatekeepers of objective truth. And so naturally, those are the people now who have to save us from this plague of disinformation. Yeah. And I should say, Sean, like the people in the groups I talked about, with maybe the exception of the pretty silly Aspen Institute Commission, are really smart people who are working really hard on these problems. Yeah. But this world is absolutely lousy with grifters. There's tons of people who made a ton of money in the tech industry and now want to sell you the solution. There's lots of people who come out of national security, various kinds of contractors. I think we can talk about these people's motivations without necessarily being like overly cynical. There's money to be made in telling people that there is a, you know, unprecedented crisis of information and, you know, we can clean it up for you. Um, my basement flooded during Hurricane Ida and we were desperate for someone to show up. And that guy had the, well, I guess he didn't cause climate change, but, you know, we were desperate for him to clean our basement up. We would have paid him anything to demold our basement. And if you convince people that there's a terrible problem and you're the only people who can solve it, you can make money off of that. Is a world without media gatekeepers 
better, you think? I mean, I, I, there are a lot of people who want to believe that it was better in the before times, that truth was triumphant and harmony prevailed, and then boom, smartphones. And you even kind of make fun of this a little bit in your hilarious opening. But I am actually curious what you think about this, because there, there is an argument that I don't know if the world was better in the before times. Certainly fewer people had a seat at the table, uh, but it was, you know, maybe less chaotic. But yeah, I mean, there are downsides and there are upsides, but do you think it is better now for all the hazards to have a world where there are fewer barriers to entry, where everyone can speak for better or worse? And even though there's more bullshit percolating, there is also at the same time more voices and it's more participatory. I think that's like the big, big question of our time or a big one. It really depends on the perspective you take. I think it has to do with the pace of change you're comfortable with, the amount of conflict, essentially rhetorical conflict you're willing to tolerate, and the degree to which you think rhetorical conflict leads to harm. I mean, physical or material harm. That's pretty abstract. But if I wasn't like a white dude, like in some ways, I deeply understand the appeal of accredited institutions that have like rigorous norms, trying their best. And (laughs) I keep thinking of the term manufacturing consent, which is not, that's the (laughs) Chomsky line. And producing a reality that is like stable and consistent and people can agree on. And like for our nation to cohere for all these things, we do need to agree on some facts. And that's a huge, huge problem. I don't know, I don't have a good answer. It's a very tough question. I think we're better off now because I think you can't have a system where almost every kind of person except one is systematically excluded from having a voice. That's not sustainable except through forms of coercion. And while we have many, many kinds of exploitation now, and while opening up those gates has led to like unbelievably painful conflicts, I don't think you can go back. I mean, we've learned so much and it just seems so wrong. Like, to put the genie back in the bottle just feels wrong. Well, I think all of that raises another maybe unanswerable question, which is, can a democratic society survive this level of openness? A level of openness that is, I think, truly unprecedented in human history. I mean, is it too much content? Is it too much information? Is it too much noise? Are we just going to, I don't know, drive ourselves nuts with all of this? I mean, look, you have like the other model for human organization right now, human political organization is in China. And, you know, they basically recently said that kids can't play video games except for a couple hours a week. And they can set all kinds of controls over um, the kinds of information people are exposed to. And again, a lot of this depends on what you think, you know, how humans should be organized, how humans should be. These are like really big questions that I do feel are beyond any wisdom I have to impart. But I do think we have to ask those questions as Americans together to understand what we want our society to look like. And we can't just pretend to come up with rules that are neutral and will like somehow only let through the good information, but not the bad. I don't think that's possible. I don't think it is either. And I think the truth is that human beings probably aren't wired to absorb this much information. And and maybe we'd be better off if our horizon of awareness was a little more circumscribed, but it doesn't really matter because that ship has sailed and there's no going back. So we're going to have to navigate this one way or the other. Scary. Yeah, indeed. And even though you, I think you came close to kind of hedging on this earlier, but I'm going to be remiss if I don't, I think, push you a little bit on it because I'm actually just curious Mm-hmm. where you land on this. And that is this kind of question of whether the internet is breaking American society or just, you know, unmasking it. I mean, one thing I I think like you hate about some of this discourse is that it becomes a way of explaining away every undesirable political outcome. You know, it's not that people simply decided for whatever reason to think or do X. It's that they were completely deranged by the internet. And Mm -hmm. it's no accident that the panic over this started after the 2016 election, in part because I think Trump's victory was incomprehensible to a lot of us. And it, it had to be explained by 
fake news or whatever. And in the piece, you you kind of asked a question, you know, is social media creating new types of people or just revealing long obscured types of people that were always there under the veneer of polite society? And now we can just see them and hear them. Where do you land on that? How do you kind of toggle between those two? I don't have a good answer. One of the things that I'm trying to be is humble about what I can know and can't know. And I think the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah. One thing that I think we can be humble about if we're going to claim that the internet is deranging people as like the knowledge class, we should acknowledge that the internet is deranging us a little bit too. If we're going to make that claim. And that like, if the internet is making people really afraid of other kinds of people, which I think it is, I think it's certainly raising the fear level in America, like unquestionably, maybe we can think a little bit about the way that derangement is affecting our own like diagnoses of the problem. I don't know. I mean, I don't come down on either side because I just don't think we have the answer. And I think, you know, living with that kind of ambiguity is harder, but it's also like prevents you from saying stupid stuff oftentimes, you know, even if it's unsatisfying. And like, I think there's enough voices who are saying X causes Y that it's okay for some of us to say, well, I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, I think that's okay. I think that's healthy. Death to the gatekeepers. We need more voices. Yeah. Well, leaning into uncertainty is not good for the grift, as you point out. But I will say, I, I really do appreciate one of your deeper points here, which is that very often we confuse symptoms of a problem with the actual underlying problem itself. And so, yeah, disinformation is a real concern, but it's also a grievous mistake to fail to see that the power of disinformation, whatever it is, its appeal is greater because our society is actually broken. Yeah. From education to healthcare to corruption, income inequality, I don't know, you name it. And that leads people to reject society, to embrace disinformation, not necessarily because they believe it, but because it's an indictment yeah. of a society that they have abandoned, and some, sometimes for good reasons. Yeah, it's, 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 it's candy. It's something to grasp at. And to your point, when technological explanations are, like when we have these technological explanations for why things are wrong, they should remind us of the technological explanations for why big tech is going to like create this new utopia. Like, yeah. I think we've been overcorrecting in some ways for basically 10 years of free PR for the tech industry. And these companies are here. Uh, they can be regulated. They can be broken up, what have you. But the underlying problems are not going to go away. And, you know, as you said, we focus on symptoms. I think disinformation or bad information, propaganda, may be like an enormous tumor like on your forehead. And every time you look in the mirror, it's like, holy shit, that's a huge tumor. But actually, you have cancer. It's very depressing. You have cancer throughout your body. You understand where I'm going with this <laughs> extremely dark, dark metaphor. Yeah. But yeah, I, you know, I think it, it's always better to think about the underlying problems, or at least we need to think about them in parallel. Well, part of your argument in the piece is that we academics, journalists, elites, whatever, are, whether we know it or not, groping for a model of the world that sustains our belief in the rationality of democratic government. I mean, is your point maybe that, you know what, democracy isn't rational, it is a little batshit, and maybe we should accept that or at least not try to contort it or control it in ways that simply aren't possible and will only make things worse. Yeah, you know, this comes out of a, some of the kind of like headier reading I was doing last year. Basically, there's a wonderful philosopher, his last name is Rahi, I can't remember his first name. But one of his arguments is essentially that democratic societies rely on like demonstrations of technological rationality. People like to see demonstrations of technological order, because it sustains their belief in a world that is knowable. And in some ways, the kind of idea that the beliefs of the population can be explained by the information they're exposed to, that's like a tempting thing for, as you say, for anyone who seeks to understand why the world is the way it is. And I think that's one factor, absolutely. It sits on top of a lot of other factors. It's like a meta factor. And let's think about all of them. Yeah, I, I think we want a manageable 
democracy because that sustains the illusion of control. But to the extent that our societies have been manageable in the past, they've been so because they weren't all that democratic. They weren't all that open. They weren't all that right. They weren't all that yeah. participatory. And now that that game is kind of over. And yeah, it's the Wild West and it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah. For the foreseeable future. I think that's right. Well, look, we're getting close to the end here. And so I just, I guess I'll close by throwing this a thought out there and, and you can wrap this up however you want. I am very much with you in wanting to step back and think very carefully about how we use these terms and how much power we grant to social media or whatever. But I will say this, you may be right that we overstate the causal role disinformation plays in our society. And no doubt the internet has unmasked a lot of ugliness that was almost certainly always there. But I do think that social media in particular, if it hasn't changed us, has at the very least given us more opportunities to be our worst selves. And that alone is a major, major problem. And you can respond to that however you you want. I think you're probably right. And the solution is for these companies to be opened up and show their research. And they have no one to blame but themselves when it comes to being opaque. And they'll give you this line of bullshit about how, oh, did previous media companies, you know, research themselves uh, and their effect on people? Well, no, they didn't because they also hadn't essentially invented an entire, you know, they weren't taking advantage of a new form of mass communication. And that's an area where I think we need way more transparency. And everything people say about what's needed is more research is absolutely true. Yeah. Well, look, the piece is called Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. You can find it in Harper's. It is one of the best things I read this year. And so I encourage everyone to please go check it out. Joe Bernstein, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. What a pleasure. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. 